Well, Coop, I think it's about time to wrap this up. Let's uh, wrap it up. (laughs) Cooper, there's something we can bond on, and I think a lot of people can relate to from our college years. A a certain hand signal matched with a few words that are signals to other people that know you well to get the whole team out of a situation nobody wants to be in. That's exactly right. It's the wrap it up symbol. The wrap it up. Our college friend group really got behind. Who's a uh, who's a pivotal hand symbol amongst it, our friend group? It just let us know that it was time to leave. It's helpful, and I think that the the listeners, obviously, this is a podcast; they can't see us, but I think you know what hand signal it is. You stick your index finger up in the air, in the air, so that the other people can see it, and it's a beacon of light and a beacon of hope in this dark situation. And you kind of rotate around and around, signaling, "Hey, guys." It's time to I'm wrap this. Wrap it up. Yeah. Wrap it up. But then sometimes you have to get sometimes out. Sometimes you got to throw it close to the chest. It's yeah. not always an obvious signal. You yeah, know? you can't sometimes just stick it out there. You're you're walking by making eye contact with the homie as you slightly flash the wrap it up symbol. <laughs> or and we like, even do it like upside down, like almost pointing towards the ground. Yeah. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Or like when you're all trying to leave and one person's still in a conversation. Yeah. And you just kind of do the walk behind the car- like the person that's talking. And you're just <laughs> you just catch them out of the thing. corner of their eye. Yeah. Right. And you flash the signal. But even though even when you flash the signal, that's that's a sign that everyone needs to leave, but it's not necessarily what gets you out. You still have to get right. out of whatever situation you're in. And there's a few call words that people have, but they may not realize they have them. Yeah. It's uh you have a you have a I mean, anyone who knows you, Zach, knows that yours is uh well, it's really good to see you guys. <laughs> it's so easy. I mean, as soon as you say that, everyone knows that you're done talking to them and yep, you're ready to yep. move on. Yep. You, uh, you, you hit this pretty like boldly as well. Yeah. And also you'll slowly start to raise your hand as if you're trying to like do like a dab or, or like shake their or... hand. Yep. Yeah. Depending I mean, on what's appropriate. I'm just the, I'm the kind of guy that doesn't want to be in a situation longer than he has to. You know, I just don't want it to hit that awkward phase. And so I just, I tell them the truth. It was so nice to meet you. In the future, now that this is out on the interwebs for everyone here and know, if I say it to you, it doesn't always mean this. But he still still loves you. I still love you. I just may not need to be in that conversation anymore. Right. You you have one as well, Cooper. What's mine? The, uh, you... Uh, say we're at a table, we're at a dinner, yep. and like it's gotten that awkward silence. Everyone's quiet. Everyone needs to leave, but no one's willing to say it. You just, just go uh, two hands, slap the table. Firmly on the table. Well. <laughs> it's faithful. And I then mean, it's a faithful ender. Two hands well. on the table, whelp, and you slide your chair back. And instantly, Slightly. no one else says anything, but everyone's chair slides back as well. Yeah. Because no one wants to be the one left last at the table. No one wants to. Zach, I remember uh, a conversation of you. We had it. It was at the college ministry. And there was uh, someone there that is just a person that you get stuck in conversation with. Obviously, <laughs> we're not going to drop any names. No. But I think that you know exactly who I'm talking about. I do. Yes. And uh, I remember walking by you multiple times and just hearing you tell her, and it was good to see her multiple times <laughs> within the conversation and her not getting the, the idea. Well, I think that you, like, you were saying nothing, but she was carrying Well, I was saying it was nice to see you. All right. <laughs> you were adding nothing to the conversation. She was continuous. And I've been stuck in this too. Yeah. I've been okay. stuck in this conversation with this person as well. And you get stuck and then continuously, you're like, internally, how am I, how are you still having things to say? <laughs> how are you still talking to yourself? Right. I've said nothing except for the occasional, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all you've gotten from yeah, me. Yeah, and it kind of becomes automated. You, <laughs> you kind of uh, like time like, uh-huh, it. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh, yep. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I remember you walking behind, like we talked about earlier, and flashing yep. the hand sign. Because that was your ride, and it was we, approaching the, the, the late hours of the night. They were about to kick everyone out. Gathering. We had to leave. Yes. Yes. That's amazing. And uh, I tried to save you. I think I... I, think I kamikaze saved you at one point and yeah but kinda... then in that situation we just rotated and you kind of took my burden and yeah then i yeah. was ready to go yep and then i got to the point where i was just hey zach you ready to go man dude yes that is another way to get out have a homie come by and save you by hey man 
I'm about to head out. You ready to roll? I'm like, oh yes, dude. I'm so sorry. Uh, um, goodbye. It was so. Right, it was, it was so I'm good to taking, see you. Now I'm the rude person. Yeah, now but I'm rude for you, you and just have to really take just, it. I take the burden. I'll I'll bear your burden anytime, man. I appreciate that. I think moral of the story is, <laughs> I think people need to work on social cues sometimes. I agree. I I think it'd be funny if the listeners would share a story with us of a time. I'd love that when they have been stuck in a conversation and just unable to exit. There's just, they're pulling the parachute and no chute is coming out of the back. <laughs> the rip cord is not just, triggering anything. Just the chute malfunction when you're mid combo. <laughs> yeah. We've find us there. on our, on our, all our socials on Insta. I mean, LinkedIn, if you want to go that route, Facebook, yeah. shoot Twitter. us a message or, or comment on our, po- our latest post with this interview. And we want to hear it. Or if you're on Apple podcast, leave a five-star review and yes. add the story in there. Would love that. Why not? We need some Bless reviews. Us. Bless us. It's helpful. Help us out. It is. It is. Well, it was really good to see you, Cooper. Man. But I think I need to go. I as well, actually. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Cooper McCooperson. It's so good to see you, but it genuinely yeah. is. I and know, when I say Zoom. that, is it is always genuine. It is. Almost and uh, we've been getting better at Zoom. Man, I was realizing as we were doing that Zoom inter- like that intro, Sounded good. Not bad. We weren't stumbling on one another. We've learned. We've <laughs> we learned. Have. Oh, Zoom. It's hard. We love it. It's helpful, but it's hard. Uh, better than no Zoom. It is. It is. It's better than the phone call on a, on a cup or something by the microphone across the room and just hearing you talk to me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Cooper, we've got Cooper. a great interview. And it was I'm excited of- to hear it. Is it your favorite one? <sighs> yes, it was. Favorite one ever. And... I didn't at the end. It's it's one of those I'm talking to. I'm like, you are so wise. You are so insightful that I'm not pulling a, a whelp or we need to wrap this up because I want to talk to you for like five more hours. You know, it's like, I didn't need an extra. Yeah. His name is Tom Leppert. He's the CEO of, mm. actually, he's been the CEO of multiple co- companies. But what we really talked about today was his stint as the mayor of Dallas. So he was CEO Jeez. of a company when he was young. He runs for mayor of Dallas. He gets elected. He's an incredible mayor. And then he goes back once he's done to being CEO of another company. The dude I mean, can just lead. And so I wow. had a phone call with him before that we, uh, we had the interview. And I was talking to him. I was like, hey, what, could we do like three leadership lessons you learned while you were the mayor of Dallas? And he was like, sure, let me think about it. And, and we, I mean, I could have just pressed record right there. And he, we could have just done it then. It was amazing. Yeah. He walked through the three uh, the three. Uh, lessons he learned is he was mayor of Dallas. The first one being that leaders frame issues in a different way to help people see it. The second one, leaders are engaged with the people they lead. And the third is you got to know the values that you're unwilling to compromise on. Mm. And with each of these, he tells a story from when he was mayor, when he was CEO. And it's fascinating. He's brilliant. He's, uh, and I think if you look back on the history of Dallas, he's one of the best mayors that we've ever had. He got stuff done. He got in and, and, and people loved him for how, at he the learned. very least, he's yeah. the best Dallas mayor we've ever had on the podcast. And so, I mean, yeah. if anything, this is, this adds to his list of accolades. I mean, add it to, uh, Mr. Leppert, the honorable Mr. Leppert, add it to your resume, put it on your LinkedIn. Absolutely. You're yeah. on the next generation leader podcast. I mean, leaders aspire to get some, some, uh, some podcast time. <laughs> they the, aspire uh, to get some time with us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh man, that is not true, but an incredible interview today. I uh, hope I'm you enjoy excited. it. Share it with your friends, leave a five-star review and, and leave us a review. Give us some yeah. encouraging words. Come on. We Even if it's from. not a five star, we'd love to learn yeah. how to improve and just engage with us. Yeah, but if it's not five star, don't put just say stars. just put five stars and then say, <laughs> I really meant to put three stars, but yeah, I can improve. That, <laughs> that would be very helpful. But without further ado, Cooper, it's the honorable Tom Leppard. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being with us and being on, being willing to do, do this. I'm delighted to, to just ask you some questions. First of all, I just want you to introduce yourself. Kind of who, who are you? What's kind of your story? How did you get to the, the mayor's office and, and just how did you get to where you are today? Uh, well, Zach, it's good to be with you, first of all. 
um, it's, uh, it's, it's probably a little bit of an unusual story and one that I would not have predicted, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago when I was in, in school. As you indicated in your question, people probably migrate to the mayor's position and kind of the time that I had in the public sector. But the reality of it is the background is really a business background. I've been privileged to uh, lead large organizations as CEO in five different uh, industries that range from running an education company of 22,000 people across the world to the largest uh, building company in the United States to being involved with banks and CEO of various banks. Hmm. So it's an unusual background in, in, in that sense. Yeah. And, and when we got to talk a few uh, days ago, you kind of had migrated from CEO to uh, mayor of Dallas and then back to another role. So kind of what's your role now? What, what's your job? What are you up to now after the mayor position? Uh, it's a variety of things now. Uh, I chair uh, two different companies, chairman of the board of two different companies. Uh, one is Austin Industries, which is a company based in Dallas, Texas. It is a general contracting firm uh, involved mostly through the southern states. So think of it from, from California through Florida, uh, largest pieces in the, in the southwest. And then I also chair a very interesting company, which is a maker of dynamic glass. So literally it is glass in commercial airports, hospitals, etc. that is actually programmed. So imagine each pane has its own IP address, and depending on where the sun is at any given moment in the year, it's actually programmed to tint so that it reduces the glare heat, and it builds a wellness environment for the people within the buildings that's superior to anything that you would have in natural class. Uh, it's a relatively new product, but it has uh, got awfully good traction uh, wow. in, in the industry, and uh, fascinating story of a company that was uh, that's still relatively young, got on the market, the product for about five years or so. Right. I mean, it's fascinating. And there's a reason you're on this program, on this podcast, because your leadership experience is it's vast. And so I kind of want to ask you the difference in the transition from CEO to mayor. Very similar roles, but there's a difference between the private sector and the public sector. So is that transition tough from CEO of company and business to more of the political side of a city and running a city as mayor? Yeah, I often get that question of kind of what's the difference of running organizations in the private sector versus running uh, one of the largest cities in, in, in the nation. And, and there clearly are differences that range from security details and things like that to literally having your decisions dissected each evening on the six o'clock news on four different networks. But in reality, I think leadership, either in the public or private sector, when you kind of boil it down, is a lot the same. You're fundamentally, I, I think, trying to define reality. You are trying to articulate a vision, a direction, where you want the organization to go. And then you're trying to motivate people to follow that, to be involved and engaged to actually arrive at that juncture. Yeah. I mean, it's very similar. And I actually read an article this morning about uh, you were the the CEO of the of the year in Dallas in 08. So, I mean, a few years ago, but congrats on that. Um, but there's a there's a lot of interesting things in the article just about how you lead and the way that you run things. And and one of the phrases they used was a, a George Patton incarnate in, in the way that you work at things and in, in the pace. And so while you're mayor, your schedule's busy. Kind of what is how do you stay um, on schedule? How do you keep that motivation to continue to push forward through busy days and, and all the meetings that you have? I've always been fortunate to have uh, a high energy threshold. So I enjoy getting engaged. I enjoy getting involved in problems, issues, those, those sorts of things. So that's never really been, been the issue for me. Uh, when I was at McKinsey, which is a very difficult environment, it's where I started out of graduate school. I was fortunate to be a, elected a partner relatively early on in my tenure there. Um, I, I guess I developed a reputation for a lot of hard work, but it's an environment, especially as young as I was when I got involved in the firm, uh, that you did have to put a lot of energy in. You did have to work hard. And the positions that I've had as CEO, those have all been ones that have been demanding, but they've also had very interesting issues and challenges attached to them. And clearly that was the situ situation with Mayor. I know uh, at one point I was introduced by the police chief and he made, 
made the comment that uh, I was driving the, uh, the security detail crazy because my schedule was so much longer than any previous mayor. They had to actually double the security force just to be able to cover it. But it's been something that uh, I've always enjoyed uh, and I've always kind of taken the, the, the challenges to heart. And I'm just a big believer that uh, you've got to do the right things and you've got to be smart. But sometimes the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I think that was something I got from my mom. She had an incredible work ethic, and I think I saw that, and that was um, something that I uh, I got from her very early on. Mm. I mean, it's amazing. Definitely bent towards getting things done and leaders that get stuff done. So I love hearing that story. And especially even you can even talk about your mom a little bit and the way that you grew up and, and, and how you grew up and how that played into your leadership now. Sure. Uh, I, I think very much we, we are all products of our environment and how we were brought up and kind of the lessons that we learned and people that we saw early on. I was, I was very fortunate. I was raised by a single mom. Um, she did not have an education. Uh, and being a woman without an education, there weren't a lot of opportunities back then. Uh, my father died when I was very young and left her with a lot of problems she had to, to, to deal with. And she had that work ethic and, you know, that focus on the future and a sense of optimism um, that, you know, it, it, it was a terrific lesson and a terrific environment to be raised in. We didn't have a whole lot. We kind of lived in a blue-collar neighborhood and went to schools that probably weren't the, the, the best. Uh, but she was always a person who had that optimistic view, worked hard, and I think I, I got that. And then I was very fortunate early on uh, to get a very good education. I mentioned the schools I went to were not particularly good, probably. The high school I went to was in a blue-collar neighborhood. It was built for 2,000 students, and there were 4,000 students. So it was, a, mm. it was a challenging environment for both the students and, 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 and the teachers. And uh, in the environment that I grew up on, my, my, my guess is that of the 1,000 or so graduating students in my class, I only knew one that had gone out out, out of state. Uh, there was not a lot of movement. Probably 60, 70% of the people in that graduating class probably still live within 10 miles of the, of the, the area. Um, all I knew is that I wanted to go to a smaller school. Uh, I didn't know a lot about schools uh, at all. You know, once I watched Saturday on the, the football teams, and that was about the extent of it. Right. And, and I guess the story that, that really changed my life was I had done a year to junior college and was going to do another year to junior college, but starting to think of what I wanted to do. Um, there was a large university in, uh, in the Phoenix area where I grew up that a lot of people went to, but it was very, very large, and that's not what I wanted to do. As I said, I didn't have a very good understanding of other options. A friend of my cousin had gone to a small school in Southern California and suggested that I should at least look at it. And it was late the summer between my two years of junior college. And I had some friends that were going over to Southern California, so I bummed a ride and I had arranged for a tour of the campus uh, in late July. And the person who ended up showing up to give that tour was the dean of admissions. And to make a long story short, 15 minutes turned in about three hours. And at the end of those three hours, he suggested that I come to school next month there. So he, in effect, admitted me with no transcript, no application, and no test scores. Mm. And that really established it was a terrific school. It was much better than, than I knew it was. Uh, it allowed me to go directly from undergraduate to one of the uh, very premier business schools, the Harvard Business School. That allowed me to move into McKinsey, uh, which is a uh, international strategic consulting firm, uh, very strong reputation. Um, when I was only 24 years old, and then by the time I was 33 years old, I was given my first CEO gig of a company that had a billion and a half dollars in assets at that time. So I look back on that day of someone who really took a chance to be truthful, right. um, you know, based on a three-hour conversation, again, not the traditional application test scores and transcripts and those sorts of things. And he took a flyer in effect on me. And that gave me a basis of an education that really has been the foundation of the opportunities that I've received since. 
so I look back on that day and, you know, clearly, um, you know, the, 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 the Lord uh, was identifying the steps to be taken. I wasn't smart enough at that time to understand exactly where those were going to be. He did. Uh, but I still look back on that day and so much of my life has been uh, a factor of that. Right. And I think even looking back in the story and you have a single parent home, you grow up and then people believing in you and there's really nothing you can't accomplish. And and being able to be CEOs of companies and mayor of one of the biggest metropolitan cities in the country, it's an amazing story of hard work and dedication and people believing and pouring into you. Uh, so I commend you for that. Um, amazing story. But wanting to get into what we're we're talking about today is just like the three leadership lessons that you learned as mayor of Dallas. When I talked to you on the phone, I think this today, last week, uh, I asked you that. I was like, what are the three lessons? And we talked about it for 30, about 30 minutes. And I learned so much in that time. And, and I want to share that with our audience now. And so talking about the three lessons that you learned in Dallas, the first one that we talked about was framing issues differently. And with leaders somehow, sometimes misframe an issue and then it doesn't get done and you don't get to the conclusion that you want. So kind of talk about that and, and how leaders frame issues. Sure. And, and there's clearly a lot of lessons that have been learned. And it wasn't just in the mayor's office, but it was over my, my right. career um, that, that, that have kind of dictated how I've seen leadership and how I've, I've seen management. Um, I do believe, as you as you've said, that too often people look at situations and look at challenges and issues and they don't frame it in the best way. And in fact, oftentimes they, they simply frame it wrong. The example that we went through was when I came in to the mayor's office, Dallas had the number one crime rate of any city in the nation, of the large cities, so kind of the ranking of the, the cities of, of over a million in population. I can remember a year and a half before when I was the CEO of the Turner Corporation, which is the largest building company in the nation. I was in New York and got in a taxi, and I enjoyed engaging with people and talking to people. So I kind of talked to him, and he said, where are you from? I said, Dallas. He said, oh, I was just listening on the radio where you're the number one crime city. So it's hmm. kind of interesting. You're sitting in New York in the middle of traffic in Times Square, and somebody's telling you that your city has the number one crime rate. Right. So it goes back to that. In fact, Dallas had been in that situation for a long period of time. And there were a number of factors, but one of them simply was that we had not put the resources and invested in developing a police force, which was the appropriate size, appropriate size to be able to deal with a city as large as it was that it grown, but also from a geographic size. And I, as I got involved in running for mayor, I spent a lot of time talking to not just the leadership of the police department, but the beat police officers, those individuals that are down in the precincts and really doing the, the neighborhood patrols. And every one of them would say, I simply don't have the resources. I spend all my time going from call to call. I'm not truly doing policing right. that would be useful in trying to reduce the, the, the crime rate. As I looked at this and understood the situation more, it was not very insightful on my part, to be truthful. The people had identified this 20 years before, but the problem is they had never done it. And clearly there were some issues related to budget and the discipline and the fiscal side. Those sorts of things was necessary to grow to a police force because there's a, there was a real investment now. But it also went to another issue, which was a, a cultural issue that went back decades. And it's one that has come to light in the last several weeks, too. And that is that in a lot of minority communities, the police is not thought of very well. And if you go back into the 50s and 60s in Dallas, there's some very good reasons for that. Right. Uh, the police did not handle and did not deal with our minority communities very, very well. And so I think in the past, people have framed the need to add police officers as a police issue or a public safety issue. A lot of the communities uh, in the south and the west of Dallas looked at that and said, I'm not sure we want more police officers. So as I went into it, what I did is not frame it in the way it had been passed, but framed it in a different way. I framed it as an economic development issue. Hmm. And in sitting down and visiting with a lot of the council people and community representatives in the south and, and the west, 
what they needed was jobs. They needed opportunity for the people in, in those, those communities. And to do that, it was going to take an investment. And I was fortunate enough to be perceived because of my business background is knowing something about creating jobs. We had created several thousand jobs when I was at Turner and several other positions. Right. And clearly I knew something about investment. So as I sat down, I communicated with them. But one of the challenges doing that was the crime rate in those communities. It would be very difficult to encourage companies or individuals to make significant investments with crime rates that were at those levels. And as a result, we framed it then as an economic development issue. And then to kind of fast forward to, to the end, over the course of the next three years, we grew the Dallas Police, off, police Force uh, over 20%. It was probably the largest increase of a major or a large city police force, at least since World War II, probably since the, the, the Depression. And once we did that, the crime rate uh, went down substantially, uh, significant decreases, and Dallas quickly fell out of that number one position. I mean, that's amazing. And as a leader, you have to be able to look at an issue, not necessarily at face value, but be able to get over the trees and see what an issue that is causing the issue that everyone is seeing is. So I want to ask you just how you were able to see it and what opened your eyes to seeing it as an economic development issue rather than just a policing issue. Zach, I think there, there's a couple of things that go into that. I, I think one is a, a, a perspective issue, again, bringing experience that you've had and those, those sorts of things to bear. The other is sometimes being kind of new and looking at a problem in a different way. Uh, when I first came in to be CEO of the Turner Corporation, which, as I mentioned, is the largest general building company in, in the nation, I did not have a construction background. So my first day in the construction industry, which is one of the largest industries in, in the world, was CEO of the largest general building company in the United States. Um, in that respect, clearly I was not going to be in a position of helping people improve the way we were building buildings. We had 7,000 engineers and they were phenomenal at right. what they did. But what I was able to do is come in and look at the business and understand it was a, it's a tough business. Uh, it is a low margin, high risk type type of business. I said, we were fortunate to have really, really good people. But yet we had the challenge of, of, of growing. And what we did there is look at the business from a different angle. Uh, clearly just doing more things. We were the largest. So we did more, we could do more things. We try to do that. But people have been working hard to, to do that. Pricing was a very difficult exercise. Uh, right. There's a lot of competition. It's a fragmented industry, limited barriers to entry, all of those sorts of things. But what we did is we stepped back and we looked at the business and said, what are the other aspects that we can add value on? Well, one of those was insurance related to construction and the projects that, that we did. We were not involved in that, but yet uh, there was actually more money in a large project, say a $100 million building, that went into insurance than did to pay the general contractor. So we moved into insurance. So the first year I was there, for all practical purposes, we didn't write insurance. The last year I was there, we wrote over $10 billion of insurance. So we got into it in a big way. And that was a source of additional growth for us. And as you can imagine, the margins in insurance were much more attractive than they were in, in construction. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, and, and so that's an example of kind of coming at it from a different way. And to do that, we fundamentally looked at, you know, where all the money goes in a large, pro a large construction project of $100 million and then started identifying different areas. We weren't going to go outside of the kind of core business but we did need to move into other areas where we could add value within the context context of that core business. So to fast forward again, um, I, when I went into Turner, we had revenues of about $4 billion. When I left, they were about $9.5 billion. And in those seven years, we made more money than the company had made the previous nine, seven years. Mm, I, I mean, that's amazing. And that's a, the huge heart of leadership. And I want to go back to the economic development issue of the policing issue, because that's a problem that we are, we're facing right now as a country. There's calls to defund or even abolish the police forces in some city. And, and what you're saying that what helped Dallas when you were mayor was that you actually put more funds into the police and, and more funding into that area. So just speaking to that issue, what would you tell the leaders of today that 
using the experience that you had back then and you're seeing the issues that we're having now with the riots and the and everything that's happening, what is your advice to the leaders that are leading right now? I think it's important, first of all, to listen to people. So not just kind of tell people, but to listen to them. And I've had the opportunity to sit down with some of those leaders, both on a national and, and a local basis. And some of the points that, that they make, I think, are very important and very useful. Uh, they would like to see more resources in the mental illness. And I absolutely uh, agree with that. Um, in fact, our police, if you talk to the police, they will tell you they spend much too much time on mental illness type, type of issues. Um, to make additional community resources in that area available, I think would be very important. But to take that and then use that to say, we'll defund the police department, put in that, is, is really naive in one sense uh, and short-sighted in, in another. The reality of it is, as I mentioned, in a lot of these communities, what we need to do is reduce the crime rate. We need to have police who aren't just going from calls to calls, but actually are spending time and have the resources to be able to actually assist the community, get engaged in the community, and reduce the crime rate. One of the things that we did, uh, we had a very good chief by the name of David Brown, um, who we appointed during my time as mayor, who understood community policing. Uh, we had people that, police officers that got involved in the community, were involved with kids, those sorts of things, and developed very good relationships. That's what you need the police to do so that they're right. part of the community and they can reach into it. Unfortunately, if you defund and reduce the size, they're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to assist in reducing crime. All they're going to do, be doing is responding to crime. And that's a very different exercise. The long-term challenge in these communities is to reduce crime. And the police can be a very important part. Now, with that said, a lot of the issues or some of the issues are mental illness. If we put more resources there, again, it would free up the police officers. They're not trying to do mental illness type of type of issues. And, you know, we do not want to spend the time and effort in taking each one of our police officers and make them a mental illness expert. That would take years of additional training. But we do have to have the resources that they can call upon. Remember, if you have an issue in a community, an individual is not going to be able to decide, do I call the police or do I call mental illness teams? They're going to have to call the police, and the police are going to have to be the ones to identify what resources are necessary for the given situation. Right. So defunding the police department, I think, is exactly the wrong thing to do. Putting additional resources into mental illness, yes, I think we can listen, we can understand that, and, and we can listen to that call and heed it. Amazing. I want to move on to the second point. Your second lesson learned as, as mayor of Dallas or in your years as CEO is leaders need to engage with their people. And you told a story and I'll let you tell it of, of a councilwoman. But what does it mean for leaders to truly engage with those that they lead? I learned very quickly when I was at, at McKinsey. Um, working and again at the age of 25 years old, advising executives that were twice my my age on major strategic and, and business issues. But if I wanted the answer to what the problem was down on a factory floor, I didn't want to talk to the senior vice president. I wanted to go talk to the person that actually ran the machines. That was the person that knew more about it. Now, often they're not asked and their knowledge and their expertise is not utilized. But I learned very quickly that that was the source of, of where you wanted to be. As I mentioned in the situation that we just talked about, I spent a lot of time talking to our precinct police officers, our, our patrol officers, not just the senior leadership. And, and I learned that that's where you actually get the best understanding of issues so that if you're a leader and how to approach them, you've got to have a good understanding of the facts of the situation. And a lot of times, with all due respect, talking to the CEO or the senior vice president, you're not going to get the best understanding. You really do have to, to talk throughout the organization. Um, when I became mayor of Dallas, that was something that I had learned in my business career, and I actually took second uh, took to be just second nature. I found out quickly that in the public sector, that wasn't the, 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 the case. Right. The, the story that we talked about earlier was, after about a week, I was sitting in one of the council person's office, and she looked at me a little bit funny, and I kind of said, well, you're looking at me funny. Why? She goes, well, 
do you know that this is the fifth time this week? So this is the first week you've been mayor. This is the fifth time that you've been in my office. So, well, I haven't counted, but if you say so, okay. <laughs> said, and by the way, that's the situation with all the other council people. I said, okay. And then she looked at me and she said, do you realize that the last mayor had only been over here in five years, two or three times? Mm. And I, again, I, I tell you it's second nature. I always found out that I would rather walk down and talk to my CFO or whoever the individual was in their office as opposed to my office. I got, it was a better atmosphere. I got better answers. They felt more comfortable, et cetera. And that was the same kind of theory, I guess, that I used when I became mayor. I wanted to go engage people and talk to them. But that that, that produced an awful lot of benefits for me um, as, as leader because people saw very quickly that, one, I was willing to listen. And two, there's a kind of a divide between the mayor's office and between the council people. By going and sitting down with them and visiting in, in their environments and in their office, uh, I think they felt more comfortable and kind of instead of seeing a hierarchy, they saw people that were willing to sit down and work and figure out how to do things together. Uh, I've never been uh, a great one for hierarchies and kind of the feeling that titles are important and that sort of thing. I've been fortunate to have an awful lot of good titles in all of my life. Know, CEOs and mayors and things like that, that they've never, uh, that, that's never been the source of my identity. I think both in the business and in the public sector, you have people whose titles become their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've also in my life been a janitor. I've been a dishwasher at a Mexican food restaurant. So those were all titles I had. None of those were me. I kind of view my title as a child of God. That's a better description than any of the different positions I've had. Right. I've always those as simply a, a position. I think too many times people get lost with what they're doing and associate that that's their identity. Once you do that, you make a lot of arrogant decisions and you make a lot of decisions that can get you in, in, in trouble. So being willing to engage people with some sense of, of humility um, and really understand that if you're going to be successful, as I kind of gave that theory of, of leadership, to motivate people, they've got to feel that it's in their interest to walk that walk down the, 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 the path, the direction, the vision that, that, that you're giving. And the only way you can do that is to build trust. Right. And building trust starts with being down on the floor with the people. I love the analogy you used of if there's an issue on the machines you're working on, you're not going to go to the CEO, you're the CFO, you're going to go down to the people who are working on the issue. And I don't know why, but that's such a huge place where people and leaders miss it, where they don't uh, they, they don't see that problem, that they, they sit in their office and they don't work on the floor with the people. And, and like you said, it's second nature to you, but uh, I think a lot of leaders miss that and, and and I think it's huge that as mayor, you're going around to the council, uh, the people's office and, and getting things done with the people, not just separately. Um, okay. And, and I, I hope I did it throughout the whole community. As I said, I had a schedule that was pr- pretty intense. Right. But in that way, I got a chance to visit with people in, in the community and understand what their issues were, what they wanted out of the city government. I think we were much more effective. By doing that, I literally went places where, you know, my security did, detail didn't want to go. But those were areas of the city that were important. They were important to those people. Unfortunately, it had probably been neglected for far too long. Um, and, and they were areas that to be able to deal with them, you had to understand the situation. And doing that through memos and long distance doesn't work. Mm, that's huge. That's an amazing lesson that, that we all need to learn right now. Third lesson that you learned as mayor or as CEO through your experience is that leaders need to know what they're unwilling to compromise on, what what values you hold, write them down, hold to them. And no matter what storms come, no matter what votes you may not get, you hold to your values. And you have a story that you told me also uh, with the Love Field concessions uh, of the airport that was being built. Kind of go into that and, and how did you get to this lesson that you learned? I, I was very fortunate as mayor. Um, we identified a number of areas. Public safety was one. 
education, the environment, economic development that we laid out um, when I first got involved in, in the, the, the race for mayor. And I'm proud to be able to, to look anybody in the eye and say, in every single one of those areas, we not only did what we said we would do, but we do more. What was interesting about the situation that you brought up was it was nothing that was on the table when I was running for, for mayor. In fact, I wasn't even aware of the, the, the situation. Um, it, it goes back years before I was in, in, involved in, in the city to when Love Field was only, when Southwest Airlines was the only airline there, and they were only allowed because of a thing called the Wright Amendment, which was a federal um, federal law rule that prohibited airlines out of Love Field from going to any state other than adjacent states to the state of Texas. Now, that was broken a couple of times because of politics. So there was a fight to St. Louis and that simply because the majority leader was from Missouri and some political stuff like that. Right. But for the most part, they couldn't do it. Um, that got overturned. And when it got overturned, um, the city of Dallas uh, had an obligation to build a new terminal at Love Field. And so, in fact, we, we did. And you get back to asking and looking at things differently. Instead of having the city build it, which would have been a natural a, 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 a natural course of action. Um, I looked at it and said, you know, it'd be a whole lot better if Southwest Airlines built it. So in effect, Leadfield Terminal was built by Southwest Airlines, not by the city of Dallas. Now it was funded by the city of Dallas. But you look at that terminal today and there's probably $100 million more investment into that terminal today than if the city of Dallas had done it because of procurement, their efficiency, they knew it. <laughs> They run an airline. They understand how terminals and how airlines need to interact with terminals. Right. They need that much better. So we built this terminal, or we were in the process of, of building it. There is a thing at airports called concessions, which is a fancy word for meaning it's who gets to sell you hamburgers and barbecue and sell you books and sell you newspapers. It's the little stores that are in an airport. And as you can imagine, those are very profitable because it's limited competition. Um, they've got a captive audience. You're there. If the flight gets canceled, you're stuck for two hours. And about the only thing you do is go get a hamburger or read a newspaper. Um, so it's, it's very attractive business. One day I was in my office and came across that the transportation committee of who I had appointed the, the, the chairman had voted 10 to nothing to give the existing concessionaire at Love Field all of the new concessions, all of them, huh. on a no-bid basis for 18 years. No bid for 18 years. Hmm. I looked at that, and I was beside myself. Right. We had done a lot of things that had, I think, improved the fiscal side of the city of Dallas. I am a big believer that people, be it on the public sector or the private side, you need to view that money as not yours, but it's your clients, it's the taxpayers, etc. And that is not always the situation, especially on the public sector. People right. think it's their money once it comes in, and they lose that sense of fiduciary responsibility. I think to a large extent we have regained that. We clearly weren't perfect and hadn't done everything right. But it has been, I think people felt in the community that substantially better and they did have confidence that we were, you know, making the right decisions and coming at it from, from the right way. To give a no-bid contract for 18 years for values of hundreds of millions of dollars, to me, would have eliminated all the progress that we made and would have been against a fundamental principle, again, of it's not our money, but it's the taxpayer's money. What would be the right thing for the taxpayer? Not for the person who has funded city council campaigns and not for the person who has built all the relationships, but what would be the best for the airport and the ta taxpayers? And, and I looked at this and clearly the simple thing to do would have been to pass it on. As I said, it been 10 but that just seemed the wrong thing. And I, I was shocked to be truthful with you that the committee had passed it that way. So I did some homework on it, found out that 
actually the grease had been skidded, but done way before I got in, in the mayor. And there's some council people who have worked really hard to have this one individual um, be able to get um, this concession for a long-term basis on a no-bid no contract. My view was I didn't care who won it, just as long as it was bid and it was done in a, in a fair way. Let whoever had the best ideas, the best proposals, the best economics, let them win. Whoever that was didn't make a difference to, to, to me. Um, it, so I started out, in effect, 14 to nothing or 14 to 1 with me being the only vote. Right. I couldn't veto it, but I sure could call a lot of public hearings and increase the focus of it. And that's what I did. I went into the, the, the press. I went into the community and I started talking about this and putting a lot of pressure. I'm just kind of saying, this doesn't make sense. Uh, clearly, the situation is not a very good one. The reason it had got to this point was a lot of what I would consider bad politics. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's a question of what principles are important. Uh, I was fortunate to really never lose a big vote at the city council in four years with one exception. The only exception was because I ended up angering a couple of people on this situation, which in effect, in the end, we won on an eight to seven vote and right. we were able to go out to bid. And if you go into Luckfield today, it would be ranked as one of the, uh, one of, if not the best mid-sized airports. Southwest Airlines will tell you that they are very happy with the concessions uh, and the different options there. Um, it, it's really a terrific terminal right. and, you know, for, for the size of it. And that largely is because you've got a lot of different players who bid. Uh, there were minorities that bid into it. Um, there were people who um, usually do, don't, do not bid into concessions and those sorts of things. And it's turned out to be a great airport. But the, the, the issue that, that you raise is you've got to draw the, the line. You know, to, to me, uh, there was a lot of pressure and clearly political pressure uh, to not rock the boat on that one. But that was one where simply, you know, if, if you're going to lead, you have to be in a position, I believe, of understanding who you're leading and at times kind of say no to bad politics, bad relationships, uh, campaign funding and things like that and do the right thing. And that was to me when I look back on my three years as mayor, that was actually the most important issue that I dealt with for all the reasons that I've told you. Mm. I love what you said right there at the end was just do what is right. No matter what uh, pressures there are from the outside, no what political pressure, campaign finance pr pressure, do what is right no matter what. I think those three lessons can be applied whether you're the mayor of Dallas, the CEO of a major company, or you're just a student wherever you're at. If you, if you learn to frame issues in a way that leads to action, leads to compromise. If you're engaged with the people that you lead, you're on the battle lines, if you're on the front lines, and that you know what values you're not willing to compromise and you do what's right. I think that is a recipe for success for a lot of leaders. And it's very important for young people to learn that. So would you add anything else to those three before I ask you our final question? You know, there, there's a lot of lessons of, of, of leadership. The, the, those are I think three not only lessons but, but examples uh, that, that, that can be useful for for anybody. And hidden, kind of hidden within those are the things that we've talked about: a sense of having humility, have have a sense of understanding and listening to the people around you. Um, and regardless of how fast you accelerate in, in your career, uh, keep in mind that usually at the higher levels of organizations. Um, those people are not represented what the world is. Right. Don't lose sight of what the real world is uh, and how fortunate we are in the United States uh, here. But also to just um, just have that perspective of humility and understand that you're, you're really serving. That as you lead, uh, that isn't some type of a special position that is given to you. There's a lot of responsibility that goes goes with it. As the CEO of all of those organizations, one of the th things that I was I kept in mind all the time was the decisions that I made were reflected in people's retirements, uh, their children's college education, uh, their ability to support their family, and those sorts of things. I think if you have that perspective, uh, the responsibility that you have to the people that you lead. Um, 
it's a pretty good indication that you're going to make good decisions. When right. you lose that, there's lots of examples on it, both in the public and private sector, uh, of people becoming arrogant, uh, feeling that they're they're above everybody else. You know, bad things happen after that. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, Tom, thank you so much for everything that you've taught us, everything you've said. Uh, I've learned so much, and I know our listeners will have as well. But last question we always ask, we don't have much time left, but is there any advice that you would give to your 20-year-old self? You look at 20-year-old Tom Lepper, wherever he was, what advice would you give to that person? Uh, that may, <laughs> that could be worth another 10 hours of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a lot because... Uh, we've talked about some of the things that turned out right. There's been a lot of mistakes and things that I've, I've done where I've, I've looked at uh, situations and uh, and not made the right call. Fortunately, uh, on the big ones, I've usually gotten those right. But keep in mind that, that when you go through 30 or 40 years of a career, there's a lot of mistakes you made, and I've made those. So I, I hope I would learn from all of those. I think the things that I would, I, I would put to the top of it would be, one, I probably would um, give myself a little bit more patience. Mm. I think there's been times when I pushed harder than I could have and I should have. Um, and a little patience along the way would have, would have, um, uh, would, would have been useful. Right. Uh, I, I think it's important for leaders to have senses of urgency. But at the same time, that urgency has got to be moderated with what you accomplish and how the organization can absorb things. And there's times when I think I push that too hard. The second thing that, that I think is important for 20-year-olds, which I, I made I made mistakes on, the biggest mistakes that I've made in my career have been people, um, people mistakes. Um, and, and it goes back to a sense of values. Um, I'm a big believer that you can educate people. I, I can change their brain. I can I can give them new concepts and I can educate them in management, I can educate them in finance, those sorts of things. You can do a lot of things in education. You can't change the heart. Right. If you have people that don't share your sense of ethics, your sense of standards, uh, those sorts of things, I found that that is a very difficult thing to change with, with somebody. And there's been times when I've tried to do that with senior people where I try to, you know, I can change them. I, I can I get them to, you know, understand the values and the principles that we're trying to inculcate. The reality of it is, is that was a lot of time that I spent wasted. Mm-hmm. You can change the head, but you can't change the heart. Um, you've got to find people that identify with what you're trying to accomplish, the principles, the ethics, the standards that, that, that you've got. Don't try to renegotiate those things. On those, find people that share them. And again, educate them and push them along so that you expand their horizons. But they've got to start with the same fundamental principles at heart that you have. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Tom, thank you so much again for your time. Uh, It was just delightful to talk with you. It's good being with you, Zach. I wish you all the best. Thank you.